You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm joined by a very excellent newer comic. You might be aware of Nish Kumar from his last three great Edinburgh shows. You might have seen him uh, in his brilliant double act with Tom Neenan, the gentleman of leisure, the old GOL, uh, as well as uh, Nish's more recent appearance on Stuart Lee's alternative comedy experience for Comedy Central. And as you're about to hear, it's all going off. Here's Nish Kumar. Where should we start? You are enjoying a glittering ascendancy at the moment, it seems to me. You described to me the other day um, your your plans for the next year. Just tell us what your plans for the next year are. Uh, I am supporting Milton Jones on tour for two months, and then I go straight off the back of that into New Zealand. And then by the time I come back from doing New Zealand, I will be prepping for Edinburgh. That's it. That's and you, and you're back like a week ago from the Melbourne Roadshow tour of India. Of India, yeah. So I've been I've been to some places, Stuart. Kumar's doing pretty well, right? Kumar's Kumar's travelling the world. Kumar's yeah. Kumar's travelling the world. Um, I just need that to start relating into some sweet sweet cheddar, yeah. so that I can start uh, roll, so that I can start buying gold watches and chains with dollar signs on the end of them. Does it feel like you're in a good place at the moment? Does it feel like this is this is a particularly good year you've got ahead of or, or behind you. I mean, you had a, you had a, your third great Edinburgh on the trot. Yeah, I, yeah I ha- I've had. It's been a good. It's it's been a good year. Um, I did Melbourne and I had a good Edinburgh. It's been a long year. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> has it? Well, t- tell me about that. Does it does it feel like it has? Because something you said we were chatting the other night and you were talking about doing a regular gig in. Was it Balham or somewhere? Yeah, it was the yeah it was the exhibit in uh, the exhibit in Balham. Much loved. I think people still run gigs there, but uh, the gig I'm talking about was run by PJ, who <laughs> we were getting very much into the minutiae of the South London open mic circuit. But PJ is a kind of vaguely legendary figure uh, in South London, and he gave a lot of people stage time. Um, and so there's this tremendous number of people who owe him a lot, ranging from. Me and Daniel Simonson to Milton Jones and <laughs> Al Murray. Yeah. Um, but he he used to run a gig in the exhibit bar in Ballum on a Sunday night and a Monday night. And that there was a group of us who would go there pretty much every week because it was the only place we could get regular stage time. Um, and the group of us was me, Simon, Daniel Simonson, Louisa Omelan, Susie Ruffle, John Kearns. Pat Cahill, John Kern's sons, wig and teeth as well. Oh, back, John back, when little, back when little Johnny Kearns was a <laughs> clean-shaved, nice young boy. Um, and, um, yeah, and there were Matt Hyten, and there were various people sort of around there, Chris Martin, there were various people around that gig at that time. Um, and, yeah, it was... Um, 
the conversation we were having was we, people would sort of get picked up by agents and people would sort of come less frequently to that gig because they were getting other paid work. And uh, it definitely got to a point where I was like, I think I might be gigging here every Sunday for the rest of my life. Yeah. Be, um, so you've been going for how long? Well, this is always a, an interesting question to ask people because there tend to be a couple of different answers. I started doing any comedy of any sort when I was at university. So I did two years of the Durham Review with Ed Gamble and Tom Neenan mm-hmm. um, and, and a couple of our other friends. Um, so I did two Edinburgh's there. And in my final year of university, Ed and Tom set up a stand-up night in Durham and I did my first gigs um, there. So that would be possibly the back end of 2006 and maybe into 2007. Then I moved to London and I only really started on the open mic circuit in 2008. So okay. there's a couple of different answers to that question. Yes. Okay. I think of myself as having been going for 10 years, but I've been saying that for so often it's probably 11 <laughs> now or even 12. I think it's fair enough. Um, and I certainly have sort of started to, I, I've gone through versions of, oh, this, it's, all, it's all happening. And, yeah. oh, absolutely nothing's happening. Yeah. I was wrong. Yeah. But it feels like there's enough things happening for you at the moment in terms of the sort of the international travel and the Stuart Lee's uh, comedy show that you were on. Yeah. I forget the, which, the, the name uh, of the It's the, the alternative. alternative comedy experience, yeah. yeah. So there, it feels like there are enough building blocks in place now that there will be, that it be, it's become inevitable. Does it feel like that to you? Or does it feel like you're going, okay, there's a, there's a, a bit and a thing there and maybe I can turn this into... Yeah, it feels much more like that. It, all, it feels much more, it feels, um, it feels like I'm surviving month to month in a weird way. It feels like, um, I don't think I'm particularly conscious of any momentum building. The thing that I feel good about is I think at the, in the last year, I've probably produced the best stuff I've ever produced. Yes, and so, I, I come to this conversation having just like an hour ago finished listening to the hour of your last, yes. your most recent Edinburgh show, Ruminations yeah. on the Nature of Subjectivity. Correct. Um, which is a title <laughs> that works well when you see it next to a poster of you holding a pretentious pose, <laughs> but one would assume when you don't see that poster, it just looks pretentious. Oh, look, the whole concept was flawed. Um, <laughs> The concept was fundamentally flawed. I took a very stupid publicity shot in 2013, because Idil Sukan does all my publicity photos, our friend, um, does all of our publicity, and an incredible photographer, does all of my publicity shots. And both of the years, so from 2012, my first show, and then 2013, we, you know, I quite enjoy deliberately messing with her and trying to put her off while she's a professional because that's how I entertain myself. Um, and I took a photo of myself, and she took a photo of me with my fingers up my nose because she tried to get me to do a serious sort of look slightly off into the middle distance. And I, we thought nothing of it, and she included it in the press pack. She sent my agent as a joke. And we, looked, we saw the picture and thought, great, this is brilliant. We should definitely use this at some point for something. And it was such a stupid photo, I wanted to put a really pretentious title to it because I immediately saw the poster. The poster looks like a kind of 1960s National Theatre thing. And yeah. it has a really dumb... That's very... It does exactly, but I haven't oh, noticed very... that when I was looking at it. Oh, it's but, a very... but it did all that programming on me without yeah. knowing how. It's oh, a well, very well. specific imi- series yes. of images that we... So Idol and I then went through all of these um, posters. 
the 60s National Theatre had a sort of Bolshevik aesthetic where it's just very functional. Like there's a serious photo and the title of a serious play in black and white. So you know that it's serious. Um, and we I wanted that photo, a big, heavy, pretentious title. And I was like, great, that's the poster. And then, of course, when you get to Edinburgh, it, there's lots of places where that photo does not appear. So a lot of people just thought I'd got a little too big for my boots. I wonder if that worked in a positive way in terms of your audience, because, like, if you'd called the show... Uh, I, I'm, I was Tits and Charlie. Yeah, yeah. If you called the show Tits and Charlie and had a sensible poster, yeah. that the joke would have worked, yeah. but you might have had people turning up looking for Tits and Charlie. Yeah, exactly. Whereas presumably your way around, at least you had intelligent people. I had no problem with drunk people. I had one drunk guy. Yeah, but it would be the foolhardy stag dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was, I had one guy who came in and he was this kind of older, posh guy who had been hitting the Merlots a little hard that afternoon, um, and he was a little bit disruptive. But other than that, I had no problem. Because, yeah, what kind of group of pissed-up lads thinks, I'll tell you what, ruminations on the nature of subjectivity will be the perfect aperitif for our evening at the strip club. I mean, even if they thought... Even if one of them had gone, yeah, let's go and ruin the yeah, show, there's no way the others would have agreed yeah, to that. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. Let, well, I want to talk to you about intelligence. You were called, I think you were called fiercely intelligent in some <laughs> review or other. I'm not in the business of quoting uh, reviews particularly. But, and, and I, so I, I mentioned, I've just, I've just listened to your show and I agree that it is your best show. And having not seen it, it you know, I've seen your other shows sometimes more than once. Yeah. This one I've just heard the audio of and only just now. But you, it, it is incredibly, it has intelligence and it has emotional intelligence. Which sure. of those qualities do you think is more important to you? Um, it's intended to be a jumping off point rather <laughs> yeah. than something where you go, the first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got that. I got that sense. It's like when we used to get essay questions at university and you're like, whatever you do, don't just write <laughs> true underneath the statement. Um, it's, I'm a, the reason I'm not pausing is because the only thing Stuart said to me off microphone was, if you feel like you're about to say, I'm sorry, this is going to be a bit pretentious, just press on with it. So I'm trying to jump that step in my head. Uh, I think that they are both important to me because I like to do material that I guess would be considered cerebral. But at the same time, I think it's important to balance that with emotional intelligence. I think it's if you're going to be... It's just the comedy I really like will often be people being very cutting about the world around them. And it's also important to me because those people that I really like are cutting about the world around them, but they are also very cutting about their own flaws. So they're as aware of their own weaknesses as they are of the weaknesses of the people or institutions they are targeting. So, and I think that it's important if you're going to show insight about external affairs and other people's flaws you need to have insight about your own flaws as well i think that you can't just go this guy's full of shit bang 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 joke 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 i'm perfect like i don't think i think that i for me that would be a slightly empty experience if the whole show was just about only because if i was perfect and perfect emotionally stable kind generous person I'd be perfectly happy calling people out on their bullshit and then ending the show there you guys all suck my name's Nish good night and just walk off 
Whereas I am well, acutely aware of my own flaws. So it's important as much to me to highlight them as it is to highlight any problems I might have with other people. Do you, do you recognise that as a particularly British attribute? Um, I guess traditionally we'd call, it as, we'd call it pretty British, but at the same time, some of the comedians I'm thinking of are American, who would be... I'm thinking of someone like Louis C.K., who is very self-deprecating and aware of his own limitations. So I think traditionally we would think of it as being a British trait, but I actually think... I, 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 I think a lot of national stereotypes are self-perpetuating. You know, we think of this thing as being British, so when it happens, we say, oh, this is incredibly British. Sure. Ignoring a swathe of evidence... Sure, but I, think, but I think looking at what you just said a moment ago, which is that, you know, I, I tend to prefer material that could be considered cerebral. Yeah. I can't really imagine Louis C.K. saying that <laughs> sentence. Do you know what I mean? I don't just mean self-deprecating. I mean, there is... Like, you, you are a particularly British man. Yeah, yeah. Like, the, the comic that I would most, funnily enough, and, and I know, I mean, I, I know you well, and I, I know that you uh, are, you've got a real horn for American comedy. Like, you love yeah. loads of American comedy. I don't know where I just got the phrase, you've got a horn. <laughs> yeah, I've got a horn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know me, always masturbating whilst <laughs> listening to some Bob Newhart album. The scaly horned nation. <laughs> but um, in terms of your influences or in terms of a, a kind of a, a... I was listening to you going, oh, there's, I'm sort of, you know, hearing echoes of, of other tones, other sure. comics' tones and stuff, in, not in a, not a positive way. But um, Here's the dirty little secret about that. <laughs> Always rip off people who are a different different race to you. <laughs> if you rip off somebody who is a different race to you, no one will ever know. Oh, amazing! The That's number the of people, white, twenty-something comedians, who are being accused of ripping off Stuart Lee is eye-watering, and it's really obvious. If you're an Asian guy, make sure you rip off Stuart Lee. Because well, people will just go, wow, I'm nice. I don't I'm think so, there's anything, anything. I don't think it remotely likes Stuart Lee. I was going to say John Oliver. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, I know you're a huge fan. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying, hey man, you're ripping off John Oliver. No, all, no, no. I think that is, that's the voice that I'm most, and it's interesting that you go, oh, someone of a different uh, ethnicity. Yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> but, I, I, well, let's, let's, let's put that to one side because I think there's, there's lots of, stuff to talk about there but I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that people uh, outside of the places you've gigged and some of the global so, places you've gigged yeah, yeah. Uh, who might be listening to this won't know you so what yeah. sorts of when you when we're talking about your material when we're talking about a Nish Kumar set or show yeah what sort of things can we expect to see um there will be pure truth <laughs> <laughs> no um there will be some stuff about race probably and some stuff about... And there'll be some long words. And there'll be some pretty high-octane insecurity. <laughs> yeah, there'll be, some, there'll be some long words. And there'll be some pretty high-octane insecurity. That would be my race, insecurity, vocabulary. Bang. And the internet. You're quite fond of the internet. Do you I think? have a complicated relationship with the internet. I would say my relationship with the inter- my relationship with the internet has never been. Yeah, I have a com- complicated relationship with contemporary culture because I'm a mass consumer of it, and at the same time, I'm somewhat ambivalent about its effects. Like the end of my show this year is, um, I don't want to give too much away, I guess. But it, the end of the show is basically 
an analysis of whether the internet is ruining our brains. Um, and my second show was about being turned into a meme. And Which people listening to this can Google. The Google, con- yeah. Confused I, Muslim. Yeah, meme. a publicity shot from my debut show, Who is Nish Kumar? Brackets, three stars, solid effort. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I always feel the need to caveat that. Very, very British, Nish. Very British, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, my first show, Who is Nish Kumar? Which opened to rave reviews at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, a publicity shot from that was turned into a meme called the Confused Muslim. Um, and I, I should point out it's not the only Confused Muslim meme available. Because, that's right, yeah. Uh, there are some much more... I mean, you're not a Muslim. That was kind of the point... Yeah. One of the points of the show. Yeah. Um, there are... I, I'm sure that there are kind of uh, headdress-wearing versions of that meme out there that people shouldn't Google and go, oh, that's what Nish Kumar looks like. Yeah. Somebody... I still don't know who did it. I've talked about it on stage extensively and on television and I've, t- I've, I've covered it in some detail and yet no one has stepped forward. Somebody took my picture and made it into a meme called The Confused Muslim and my second show was about the experience of having my face turned into a meme. And so again, yeah, you're right. I hadn't really thought about that. There is a lot about the internet and it does crop up and I think it's because I have a complicated relationship with the internet and technology because I love it I listen to it. This show is one of a string of podcasts that I've listened to every single episode of. And, uh, you know, I've, I'm on, I love Netflix and I, you know, I, I think it's amazing that we can share, you know, I'm into comedy that I would never have been able to access 10, 15 years ago. It, you know, a couple of clicks on YouTube and you're there. You can read essays and share information. But at the same time, I'm constantly worried that it's warping our brains negatively. So, yeah, there will be ambivalence towards technology, <coughs> race, insecurity, long words, and some great swearing. <laughs> I'm a good swearer. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to digress briefly because something has just occurred to me, which is that one of, the, one of your uh, strongest suits is a real sense of your own voice. And I don't mean... Well, maybe I do mean the way in which people talk about... Uh, you know, finding one's voice as a comedian. Sure. But I, I think that you're very confident in your analysis and your presentation of yourself. Like, sure. and, and sometimes that takes the form of, like, Kumar, don't play that way. Yeah, kind, yeah, of, yeah. kind of thing in that sort of pseudo, you know, Americanized. Yeah, you know, yeah. That sort of, like, lifting a, an, an existing uh, That's trope. right, yeah. Um, but also, like, you're in, several times during the show, you say things like, principled but cowardly, that's the Kumar way. Yeah. You know, you make pronouncements about yourself. Yes. And... It strikes me that what you're describing about your complicated relationship with the internet is something that everybody feels with the internet. Yeah. Everyone has a complicated yeah. relationship with the internet. Something I really struggle to do, and that I think you have a really good facility for, is to say, I'm like this. This is my experience. Yeah. Whereas I, I often find myself going, oh, I can't say that because everyone thinks that, you know. <laughs> but but you're, you're, you seem very kind of comfortable. It's a real strength of yours that you go... This is my experience of the world. You have a great deal of ownership of your sentiments, of the sentiments that you pronounce. Sure. You make pronouncements about yourself and about the world. Yeah. Where does that confidence come from? Because I am only ever expressing my opinion. And I try to make it clear the whole time that I'm only ever expressing my opinion. And that's um, something I'm interested in doing, but it's also the byproduct of... it's. Necessity is the mother of invention. And I s- tried for many years to relate to people. 
as a comedian and try to do material that would resonate with people. And I was trying to say, don't we all do this and don't we all do that? Like, like what? What sorts of things? Um, I was trying to do... I would try and do stuff about the way that, you know, British identity or, you know, we're all... We're all the, I tried to expand what I was doing outwards because I thought for, for years when I wasn't when it, when it wasn't successful I thought it's because you know, people don't relate to me because I started from a position of going this is my worldview and the rest of you can go fuck yourself and then it didn't work for a while so I thought well maybe I should expand it outwards and on Josh Widdicombe's podcast he talked a lot about how observational comedy is incredibly difficult and he oh on his yeah, his episode of this show yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we're now reaching a point where we've <laughs> done enough shows that people are able to refer back to previous episodes if you haven't had the reading list for this podcast <laughs> you're going to find it very difficult but in Josh's podcast Josh talks about how it was very difficult to do observational comedy and it's a real it seems a real bugbear of his that people think it's very easy to do largely because I've spent my entire friendship with Josh telling him what he does is easy <laughs> very easy to do oh we all sit on a chair don't we josh um he is correct it's incredibly difficult to produce material that resonates with an audience and you can have that moment of shared recognition where they hit on something and people go yeah we all relate to that i simply cannot do that i would love to be able to do that but i simply cannot do that and sometimes the best the, the the most shrewd analysis on you comes from your own mother. And I once said to my mum, my mum must have been saying something like, why can't you do Michael McIntyre's stand-up show? He, why don't you look at what he does. People like what he does. And I was trying to explain to her that he does observational comedy, and that's not a genre of comedy I do. And she said, yeah, well, of course you don't. You are not an observant man. And <laughs> that is the most salient. I, it's... I can't do comedy. I can't do a piece of material where I go, we all do this, don't we? I, for some reason, I, I don't have that club in my back. I don't have that technical skill. And I am always much stronger. And I go over better with audiences when I go, this is my opinion. And this is what I feel about this. And I do this thing. And it, when I stopped trying to get the audience to relate to me, my gig started going much, much better. Because I found that people either go, hey, I think that too, and I didn't think anyone else thought that. Yes. Or they go, <laughs> you're fucked, mate. So yeah. either way, people laugh because they either recognise it or it's so left field that yes. they find it funny. There's, there's no, that's a, yeah, absolutely. There's no, there's no element of your show whereby you're going, right, guys? Yeah, because I can't do it. <laughs> and I, the only reason I can't do it, the only reason I don't do it is because I have found through failure that I cannot do it. I just don't, my brain doesn't work in that way. And I'm not that type of comic. Um, you know, there, there's so many different types of comic, but very often the sort of two broadest categories you can put people in are either people who are individuals that people find themselves laughing at or with. And that can be anything from, you know, somebody like Stuart Lee, who's presenting a very distinctive worldview and a series of opinions or Milton Jones or James Acaster who is an odd person mm. and is presenting themselves as an outsider or you get people who are uh, they almost have like they're almost like politicians in that they're just geniuses of capturing the zeitgeist or saying something that resonates with an audience and again that is a sort of broad 
brush strokes to do it with. But it, it tends to be people who are either like outsiders looking in and the audience is either laughing at or with them or these kind of people who have a preternatural ability to judge the mood and verbalise what groups of people are thinking. So somebody like Michael McIntyre or somebody like Josh, you know, could easily turn those skills a couple of notches to the right and be prime minister because they have this capacity to write stuff and perform stuff in a way where people go, wow, yeah, we all do do that. That's, you know, those are incredible. Yes, if you you seeded a prime ministerial speech with some of Josh or, or McIntyre's observations. I really People believe... would be, they'd be doing that thing like when it's on a cartoon when a smell goes past and you know carries it along. I really believe that, you know, in a different world, Britain is ruled in a military junta by Michael McIntyre. Like, because... He, and I think that there are lots of different types of comics, but broadly you can almost put okay. people into two broad camps. So which are you? I have always sat more comfortably as an outsider or as somebody just presenting their perspective and then letting that be judged. So this is Nish, and as you can hear from this interview, no doubt we uh, get along famously. Nish is a good friend of mine and a brilliant comic, and it's very exciting for me to be able to use this show to support newer people on the circuit that are, uh, as you can hear, just kind of starting to break through at the moment and... uh, and really get the recognition they deserve. Um, That process will continue at the Soho Theatre this January, from Monday the 12th to Saturday the 17th. That's uh, January. Nish Kumar is doing his show Ruminations on the Nature of Subjectivity at the Soho Theatre in Soho in that London. So go along and see him. Book your tickets now. Uh, I'm sure it's going to sell really well. Uh, And why not just... Why not flood them with so many requests for tickets that they chuck on an extra week? Why not do that for lovely Nish? He's fantastic. I, I really, really recommend him. I know there's... There's almost a sort of minor conflict of interest when I have someone on the show who's clearly my friend. But, um, hey, there's people out there who are my friends that aren't good enough to be on the show. I'm looking at you, Comedian X. I'm teasing. <laughs> that, there's an element of truth to that. And there's also an element of complete bullshit. My point is, just because he's my friend, don't discount him. Nish is superb. While we're advertising things, uh, the three-headed Megapod, a little Christmas Megapod with this show and uh, Carl Donnelly and Chris Martin's podcast, uh, which is, we've talked about this now, it's going to be a really special event. We're not just going to take turns and do an hour each. We're going to combine all three in a big, uh, all three of us, <laughs> all, all two shows and all three people uh, in a big, uh, stupid Christmas affair uh, with all sorts of items and, and kind of bits from, the, what are they called? What do you call an item on a show? Format, all kinds of format things. Don't know much about my job, um, but uh, that's going to be great. Remember, at the Phoenix, uh, which is a pub in Cavendish Square, just off Oxford Street in London, on December the 21st at 7 o'clock. So please get a ticket for that. You can Google up where to get them. It's on uh, Twitter. It's on the Facebook page as well. Uh, the Twitter is, of course, as you know by now, at ComComPod. Uh, so you can check that out. Um, now, listen, I'm clearly wheezing again in the background, and it's been pointed out to me in passing by two people in the last week that I always see by the bunged up or wheezing when I'm doing the links. In fact, I've not stopped coughing since Dubai. <laughs> and uh, perhaps I'm on the way out. I'm starting to worry about it. This will be scary when it turns out uh, in the future that I died of something horrible and lung-related. This is my message back from the future. Just know that I loved you all. And, uh, oh, it's dark here. This is getting morbid. <laughs> I'm just worried. <coughs> Whoa. I mean, 
Nathan, normally I ask you, Nathan is my uh, my uh, brilliant co-producer, Nathan Wood. Uh, I occasionally talk to him, although I nipped it, he, I get him to cut those bits out um, when uh, when he edits this stuff together for me, for us. Um, but uh, let's leave this one in, Nathan, just me telling you that, hey, don't cut that cough out. I know you've been cutting a lot of coughs out, but leave that one in just as... Uh, just as part of my morbid fantasy about a message back from the future. It's interesting, the idea of legacy, isn't it? I'll be able to listen to these shows when I'm old and becoming gently demented. I've, got, I've, I've cleverly created an archive of conversations I've had with people I like and respect. And um, hopefully in the future, MP3s still exist and they can be beamed directly into your mind with added smells and sounds and so forth. And I'll get to enjoy uh, all of these. That'll be mostly the... Have I said this before? On the show, this is exactly this is exactly my point. My lung capacity is diminishing, my mental capacity is diminishing. I've been worried for a while that I've got the memory of a little old lady because I keep going to the supermarket and seeing things I buy, and I have a very limited scope of things I buy. And I go, oh, that's green pesto. I get that, so I put it in my basket, and then I take it home and I open the cupboard, and I've got seven identical jars of green pesto. And uh, that's sort of what I imagined my granny doing when she was a bit more mobile, just buying. The same thing over and over again, blissfully unaware of whether you've bought it. Whenever I've been in flat share situations, I've always wanted, and I've never done this because you don't want to be the sort of person that writes on your stuff in a flat share fridge, but I want to write on my stuff, not to stop other people from having it, but to remind me that it's mine so that I don't... Otherwise, it's just a fridge full of stuff. And I look at things, I go, genuinely, I can't tell if any of this is mine. And I'm not just on the rob. I don't know... Whether any of it's legitimately mine, because my mind is addled and failing. And I spoke to my manager, I had a lovely lunch with my manager last week, and she made reference to, just in passing, she said something about, yeah, we need to make sure we don't work you too hard, Stu, because you tend to get a little lot, don't you? And I was thinking, do I? Oh God, do I? I'm really worried about my, uh, my wheezy lungs. I think I'm allergic to something in my house and I don't know what it is. And so I keep replacing things taking things out and then replacing them. Have I told you that? This is becoming surreal. I'll get back to the plugs. Um, Thank you for all of the love about the 100th show. Thank God these podcasts have got numbers. I can keep some record of where I am without going too mental. Um, I had some lovely messages from you all, from loads of you, about the next, uh, about the previous hundred shows. This is from uh, James, who says, "Thanks, Stuart. The show inspired me to finally give stand up a try, and it's exactly a year today. Thanks," he says, "for the sleepless nights, lonely car journeys, and crippling anxiety. Here's to the next one hundred, James. Thank you, James. Um, I'm just spreading the love. I'm just spreading the love." The lack of sleep, the loneliness and the crippling anxiety. So um, I'm glad you're enjoying all of that. Uh, Hopefully I'll also be spreading some uh, lung-related infections and uh, some loss of memory. Also, congratulations, says Roger Clark, on getting to 100. It's helped change my life over the last couple of years. Thank you, Roger. Um, Roger's a a firm friend and supporter of the show, so thanks to Roger. And uh, Aaron Barton says... As an open spot who's performed stand-up for only a few months, it's both refreshing and terrifying to know there is no right or wrong way to write material. Well, my work here is done, Aaron Barton. Glad you're enjoying it. Um, and thank you to Helen Donoghue as well for a very sizable donation, which she qualified by pointing out the exact system that she used to work out what she felt like she should give. Uh, I shan't embarrass Helen by telling you the amount, but it was X pence per show plus something for the extra shows plus the two quid she never got round to donating during Edinburgh. Thank you, Helen. It's very much appreciated. You too can donate. (coughs) 
to keep me alive and buy me an iron lung, um, you can uh, you can donate by going to comedianscomedian.com and clicking on the PayPal button, which is very easy to find and highly visible. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash comcompod if you're a Patreon user and uh, and donate however much money you think the show is worth. And remember, your donation pays for the people that can't afford it. I think a pound a show is more than fair, um, but equally... 25p a show is kind of a sort of mates rates thing and we're all friends here so uh, just chuck at me whatever you think the show's worth if it's made a bit of a difference to your life uh, me and my uh, increasingly beleaguered team of quasi staff members uh, will thank you for it very much um, Dave McSavage coming up in, in the next episode a brilliant street performer um, and apparently someone that uh, a comic that people in Ireland love to hate have a watch of the Savage Eye his uh, sketch series uh, you can get that on YouTube if you're not in Ireland um, and uh, I think they're now on their fourth season uh, to find out what we're talking about. Have a little research of Dave before we speak to him uh, in next week's episode, which is going to be recorded live tomorrow night in Dublin. Um, there's also a great clip of Dave McSavage's old street show at Temple Bar. Yes, he used to be a street performer too, so pop that in the Google. Um, that is all for now. Let's get back to Nish. Sorry it's been a bit rambling, but as I've explained, I am very old and falling apart both mentally and physically. <laughs> So this is a piece of material that I thought I would work as an observation. So a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to... I, was, I, I'm not, I don't know why I'm pussing around saying his name. I was talking to a, James Acaster about an idea that I had for a joke. And he said, yeah, that'll really work as an observation. And it was the idea that... So the way that I presented it on the three or four occasions that I've done it was... Guys, you know when you buy a new toothbrush, don't you hate it the way that you immediately lose your memory of your previous toothbrush? <laughs> and the audience were just like, no! We, we know exactly what our previous toothbrush looked like. Are you an idiot? That's very funny. And I really thought, this is my man draw. I really thought to myself, this... Is my man draw? This is a my Apollo set in white. <laughs> oh my just god! Did, just did, the audience went no, and people then laughed. The time it worked was when I went was when I was talking about the failures of my own brain. Yes, and I said I like I've got a, I've got a terrific memory for pointless facts, but I have a very scattered, like basic memory for day to day stuff. So I can tell you chronologically by date the order of Bob Dylan's 1960s album releases, but I can't remember what my last toothbrush looked like. And I did an act, and you know, and I did an act out off the back of that of my flatmate coming out with four toothbrushes, saying, "Whose are these?" and me going, "I have absolutely no idea." <laughs> and it worked much better when it was me presenting it. And I, I don't know yes. why. So well, well, let's look at that. What have you done there? You've taken it from being a "Hey guys, we all think this." Yeah into an observation about your own life yeah. which other people can, are free to agree with or not or but not. If, they, if they haven't observed that themselves they can go look at this idiot so the material is not fully working yet so I don't know whether it's something that will be it's kind of it's a new bit that's in a state of flux but the times the, the times I've done it and the times that it's worked the audience has been divided I would say 70-30 70% of the audience laughing at me and 30% of the audience being pointed at by the person they're sat next to 
as they as I say, and they normally have their head in their hands. So, <laughs> so what you what you've hit upon there is the genre of um, micro observational comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Things that exactly thirty percent of the audience. I does. I'm carving out a career as an observational comedian whose observations are so niche. His career is financially unsustainable. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. That so that's why I think I think I've ended up. I think I've ended up being considered an interesting alternative comedian by default, just through an inability to do anything else. <laughs> do you feel that the stuff you're doing now is the the, the the style that you're doing now is that you've got it and this is the stuff you're going to be doing in 5, 10, 15 years' time? I don't mean obviously the material. I mean this particular, like you say, those quarters, you know, family, internet, ethnicity. Yeah. And, and, and it, not only those topics... But also the way that you talk, you talk very fast. You cram in sort of thirty yeah. percent more punchlines into an hour than anyone else because you just continually talk very, very fast. Yeah, I um, I'm happy with what I did with this show, and I'm happy with the style that I hit on, and it's kind of evolved over the three solo shows, and I'm happy with. But I just I think it's you never know where you're going to be in five years, five ten years time. You never know what kind of act you might be. And because when I did my first show, I thought, yeah, this is it. I've nailed it. You know, you have a tendency, wherever you arrive at... Whatever, you like, need that belief. You need yeah, you're you putting your first you, hour oh, together. God, yeah. You have to you believe have to it's have the answer that. to comedy. You have to. And also, I think you slightly need that belief for every single thing that you do. Every, I, I feel like every new thing that I'm working on is the best thing that I've ever done. And... Sometimes that's true, and sometimes it's a sort of necessary delusion just to sort of keep you pushing through it. You need to think, what I'm doing now is the greatest thing I've ever achieved. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you're finished with it, as soon like my second show, I was like, I don't know how I'm ever going to write a better show than this. This is my best show. Great. And then as soon as I was finished with it, I would say the day after the last show I did of it in Melbourne, I was like... Thank fuck I don't have to do that again. <laughs> like, yeah. it, I think um, for me, comedy stand-up material has like a shelf life. I think that after a certain point, it starts to go a bit overripe, and so it's like shedding skin. Like, I think you just have to constantly go. I think this is the best thing ever. I think this is the best thing ever. Nish, yeah. it's finished. Great, that was a piece of shit. And move on to whatever the next Yes, thing. you can't be a mountain climber by climbing one mountain and then resting, like, telling everyone about it for the next 30 years of your career. Yeah, sure. You've got to go out and climb another fucking mountain. Yeah, climbing. of course. Yeah. And I think some of that, you have to sort of slightly play tricks on yourself. You have to, at the time, think that what you're doing is great. And then as soon as you're done, you almost have to have slightly overcompensate either way. So when you're doing it, you have to think, this is really great. And as soon as it's done... You have to go, this is a piece of shit. And, you ha- and it's slightly too far the other way. The truth is, the show was probably, my second show was somewhere in between. It was a good show. It wasn't the best show I've ever done, but it wasn't as bad as I immediately felt about it after I'd finished with it. And some of that is just like, it just gives you the push to move on to the next thing. Something I thought was really interesting about your most recent show, about Ruminations, is um, that it did contain, it seemed to contain more than the previous two shows. It contained more of your kind of self-analysis and your analysis of your own uh, 
emotional foibles, stumbling blocks, mm -hmm. things like that. You talked a lot about your ego. You talked about convincing. I thought it was very, very funny that you, having been single for seven years, you've convinced yourself you had a certain personality simply by telling yourself you had that personality. Yes. So what was it like, the experience to write... Was it different to write observational comedy about, like, where you stand outside yourself and observe your, whether it's observational or not, yeah. you stand outside yourself and you kind of analyse and assess and sort of forensically cut into your own emotions? Yeah. Was that, what was the, the difference between that process and writing the sort of stuff you have where you're telling a story about something that happened on a train? Um, it was... I found it more rewarding... Because I just felt like, I felt like it was, it was more personal. Was it harder to write? Yes. It was harder to make work. It wasn't necessarily harder to write. Like I had the ideas and I had the pieces in place. And I felt like, oh, okay, I have the jokes lined up. And so actually what you see in the show is very similar to what was initially written. All of the material that's about my, my ego and my pessimism, the actual words are pretty much the same as the first time I did it. It's hard to make work on stage because I think people almost were over-empathising and feeling sorry for me. And it wasn't, for, it was hard to function as comedy because it felt particularly like for, it was really hard to make that work. It wasn't hard to write, it was hard to make funny on stage. So I'm trying to, let me, let me sort myself out because I think I'm not sure I'm explaining this clearly. I found it very easy to write that material, to analyse myself and to write jokes about my own weaknesses. But when it came to performing them on stage to people, I found it hard to get laughs because people were feeling sorry for me or were almost like, oh God, this guy really has, has problems. And from my perspective, I was going, no, this is funny. Like, it's funny to me, but it's because I wasn't performing it right. So it's easy to write, but it was hard to perform. Do you, it's interesting, what that throws up for me is that if you write a joke and you go, this is easy to write this joke, and then you tell that joke and people don't laugh at it, yeah. have you written a joke? Yeah, if a tree falls in a forest <laughs> on someone's head and no one laughs at them, yeah. Um, I... I haven't really thought about that. I think... I had an instinct that it would work. I had an instinct. Like, it, it must have worked enough of the time initially. It must have worked 50-50. Or maybe even... I think, actually, from memory, it didn't even work 50-50. It was working one every three or four times. But when it worked, it really worked. Yeah. So it's that thing of going... Because normally when you get in most of the material, particularly the material in this show, most of it was like stuff that I would do and people would laugh at some of it and not other bits of it and you'd edit it and prune it. But that section about myself particularly, people would either laugh at all of it or none of it. Yeah. But when they got it, it got an amazing... It got a really good response and it was a really exciting thing so I sort of thought it's worth persisting with because if it's going this must be something I'm doing on one night out of four that's making it work mm. but I'm not doing the other three nights because it was working so well 
and I felt so good about it on the one night it was working. The three nights it wasn't working, I was thinking, maybe I'm doing something wrong. And I slowly realised that I was doing something wrong. It was a performance trick that I wasn't doing. And it's about changing the tone of... I found it easy... I found it easier to perform material that might be uh, more political or more personal if I get silly in my performance. Aha! I was hoping you'd say that yeah. because the next... Go, go on, keep... Go I just found off. that you can... That I've got sillier and looser in the way that I perform on stage. And that has given me a license to talk about more serious subject. Matter. I'm really excited to hear you say that. And I'm not trying to take any credit for this, but yeah. I've been telling you to be sillier for yeah, ages. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. We had that conversation more than a year ago. Yeah. When I was like, the way you are socially, when you're yes. just really daffy and this guy and yeah, all the rest yeah, yeah. of it, I think is your funniest self. Yes. And... Uh, for me, I was always fascinated by the dynamic between that and the really intelligent stuff you'd say on stage. Yeah. I thought that bit was the strongest bit of your show when you were talking about yourself because you were using your sort of forensic analysis abilities yeah. to take yourself apart. Yeah. And it, well, I mean, I, I loved it. I thought was my, that was my favourite bit. But and you can do the... For, yeah, and what I found is if you do the forensic analysis bit, but you do it in quite a sort of, you know, serious way... People obviously take it seriously. Yes. And the reason that that material was working once out of four times is I was much looser with it and much more goofy on stage. Yes. And people realising that it was a joke. And so, and that was like, that's been the biggest breakthrough, I think, it, for me in stand-up in the last 12 months, is I've realised if I'm goofier and sillier, I can talk about anything. I can interpret survey data for, for, for 10 minutes. 10 minutes of my show is interpreting yes. survey yes. data. And it's... It's a very it's, strong bit as well. Just yeah. for, for, people, for people listening, it's, it's a, a, an exploration of the, the... The data is what, exactly? The data is uh, the a survey that said a third of people would not... Uh, would, would be, be uncomfortable. uncomfortable with the idea of a non-white prime minister in the UK. Yeah. And... Uh, immediately I was like, this is a really interesting thing. And it's a very you thing yeah, as well. You're very, like, oh, this yeah. is me. This is, yeah. this is data and ethnicity. <laughs> <laughs> it's the internet and ethnicity. Yeah, it's part exactly. of the holy triangle. Exactly. If only my dad had done, taken the survey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if only I'd gone to see a dirty movie with my dad. It would have been. It, um, that dirty movie with my dad is a reference to a piece of material from yeah. my first show. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realise if you leave that hanging and don't know the context, <laughs> it sounds alarming. Um, I... Yeah, I was able to interpret survey data and, and just talk about that, but in a goofy way. And two things two things have happened. One, it's enabled me to talk about and do material that I don't think I would have been capable of talking about 12 months ago. And two, it's done the thing that I, I think in a weird way I've always wanted to do, which is the one of the things that I was most... I guess jealous of, but the, one of the things I aspired most to was I heard an interview with Richard Lewis. He's an American comedian, American stand-up comedian, and he's in Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's Larry David's friend. And he said, I mean, he's been doing comedy for 50 years now, something ridiculous like that. And he said that he now is so 
the gap has dropped to such an extent between his personality and his onstage persona that he now doesn't write anything down. He has a list of words that he is going to talk about and he goes on stage and he talks about them. And I remember thinking, that's, I would love to do that. Yeah. I would love the gap between my offstage personality, my real personality and my onstage personality to thin to such an extent. There's always going to be elements of yourself that you dial up and down on stage because it's a performance. It would be a cheat to just turn up and speak as you like, I'm like an evening with Nish Kuhn. <laughs> it would be a cheat almost to do that. So you've got to have some performance skills, but I'm very jealous of people. I personally love the idea of going on stage and being myself. And I've been searching and trying to yes. thin that gap. It's and almost I, the Tai Chi of comedy, isn't it? It's like, it's the yeah. moment when you kind of, the, the, this some sort of zen moment happens when you're like, oh, I'm no longer pushing Norpoli. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's seeing the Matrix. Yeah, yeah. And there's only, I mean, the last, last week's episode, I don't know if you've heard it with Phil Kay, he talks about the moment when the bullets no longer are appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. which incidentally is the best way yeah. anyone's ever described that moment. Yeah, and Phil, Phil Kay is so fearless. I get the impression if someone actually shot him on stage those bullets would be appropriate. I honestly believe if somebody shot Phil Kay in the middle of a stand-up set, he would wave his hand and the bullet would just fall away. <laughs> but, yeah, and, it, and again, I think I, I'm always very wary of people who say a thing that they think about stand-up and what they want to do with stand-up and go, that's what stand-up's about. Sure. It's about honesty and about truth and that's what stand-up's about. That's bullshit. That's it's it's just that that's my it's like saying that's what, that's what weather's about. Yeah, it, it? Re- <laughs> that really one of the things as a student of this podcast. One of the things, <laughs> well, that phrase is going to get repeated. <laughs> one of the things that I think comes up constantly is people have a bugbear or a particular axe to grind, and sometimes they don't even realise that they're grinding it until they talk about it on this podcast, um, and you'll see like. Or people, I've often you hear interviews going, God, that, yeah, that actually really bothers me. The thing that bothers me, I think, most about stand-up is whenever people say, that's what stand-up is. That's what being a real comic is. Because stand-up is such a great, broad church. I mean, it's just a person and a microphone. You could do anything. Why would you restrict it to being that one thing? So whenever people say it's about questioning people in power, you go... I mean, are you saying Emo Phillips is not a comedian? Yeah, because yeah. He goes on stage and makes jokes up in <laughs> chess with old people, like and Stephen Wright and Tony Law and the silly men. And then at the same time, people who go, you know, comedy is all about, it's all about just purely making an audience laugh. You go, well, does that mean you're invalidating Lenny Bruce or Stuart Lee? You know, it's, it's, it's not, there's not, there's no one thing. Stand up is whatever you want it to be. I wonder why people come to those conclusions. I wonder if it's because it, it is such a broad church, it's so open, yeah. that people feel they need to create, a, they need to tie themselves to a, one mast or another. Maybe. I think I mean? also there is sometimes a sense of people uh, who are high on their own self-importance. You know, I think sometimes people want, to, I think probably your interpretation is a more charitable view of people. (laughs) But I think sometimes people are, get carried away with their own significance and they have a tendency to go, what I'm doing 
must be yes. correct stand-up. And we might extrapolate then, if you don't have a problem, if your problem is with people who have an axe to grind about a particular thing, do you not have an issue with your self-importance? Are you a kind of... Like, I mean, you don't, you don't seem to. You don't seem to be... I, I mean, every stand-up has a certain amount of self-importance. You have yes. to have a certain level yes. of self-importance to stand up and go, everyone here... I can't remember, Alfie Brown has a great line about it. I think it's something like, and I apologise if I'm mangling this, but Alfie said something like, I think I'm such good company, I charge. Yeah, yeah. And it's like a perfect line about stand-up, I think. Yes. So there is a base level Absolutely, but specifically about you. Like, I get the sense of, and you, you, know, you know I like to ask people if they're happy or not, <laughs> but interestingly, in your most recent show, you talked about the problems with your ego and thinking you were great and then being optimistic and actually realising you were pessimist. Yeah. Are you happy? Yes, I think so. You yeah. seem to be at the height of your powers, operating in an industry you believe in, in which you believe, and... and with an ability in which you believe. Yeah. And you seem to... I mean, I wonder if that's why you don't have an extra grind other than about people who have an extra grind. Yeah, but I mean, that's... There's always a presentational self and then there's your actual self. And there's always... Josh Widdicombe said that he, I'm the happiest man he knows. And I think... I think I am... Ex- I think my problem is sometimes... I think sometimes I have a problem verbalising my frustrations um, and my neuroses and all of the, the negativity is something that is very present in my head and I struggle to verbalise it and the, this show was both a breakthrough I think comedically for me but I think it was also quite something of a personal breakthrough to use therapy language, in that I think I really got into the core of some of my issues that I have. And I, I, I am a happy person, but I also have... I have, but I have a tremendous ego. Just because you're, I'm self-aware of it and I say I have a tremendous ego doesn't solve that problem. So if you have a tremendous ego, it's fine and it can be really good because it pushes you up on, up on stage and, you know, it makes you good communicator but at the same time if you have a tremendous ego there's always going to be a part of you that goes I'm not doing as well as I should be or I'm not as successful as I should be and I'm not you know I should be better and again that can be a good thing because the impulse to say I should be better is something that can motivate you but at the same time it can drag you down um it can make you benchmark arbitrarily against other people and do you do that yeah totally yeah, that, that's not a, obviously you, you. That's not a thing that you ever express yeah, to me. But it's very difficult to because it's very embarrassing <laughs> to talk about your. It's very embarrassing for me to talk about my personal failings, and for some reason, until I'm faced with a group of strangers, Ooh. at which point it's very easy for me to say anything. If somebody will get a laugh, I'm like, yeah, I'll tell them that, that aspect of my personality. No problem. It got a laugh, and it. Um, so yeah, there is all of that stuff. But it's, I, I, I don't, it's, it's not as foregrounded with me, um, which is, I think people sometimes, it cuts both ways. So that's both sort of a good thing, because I think I'm a great laugh, 
and I'm good company. <laughs> I'm a tremendous you, laugh. You are a great laugh. I'm a tremendous laugh, but I think it's uh, a bad thing because there's a level of dishonesty going on. Like, you're, you, I'm not as open about my flaws in my personal life, I think, as I should be. Because I think it's healthy to be aware of your limitations because then I think you can actually go about managing them better. Which comes first for you, the the wanting to get a laugh or the wanting to say a thing? Like when you're sitting, like you, 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 we were just talking earlier on, you're planning, you're thinking you're going to do Edinburgh next year. Sure. Um, and when sitting down to write an Edinburgh show, yeah. if, that's a, if that's even a sort of word yeah, yeah, yeah. sentence, you know, yeah. um, something I find myself thinking, and I, you know, I've, I have of late sort of realised this probably isn't a great way to look at it. I find myself thinking, Christ, I've got to fill an hour. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, there's an element of that. And, and really what I'm trying to do now is, no, I, I need to, I, all I need to do is be excited by a thing and want to yeah. explore it. Yeah. Up until such time as I have to, oh, I have to, uh, uh, I have to sadly stop that process and go, no, I've been excited about too many things now. Those are all the things I have right. to okay. talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, Do you know what I mean? There's like coming at it from two different Yeah, I, I'm, I wonder whether there's anyone, whether any comedian who's in, you know, September or February, whenever you make the decision to go to Edinburgh, thinks, God, I've just got too many ideas. <laughs> if only there was a way for me to winnow down my genius. <laughs> I wonder whether there's anyone. I think there's... I think there's lots of people, even like some of the most exciting and creative people I know, have moments where they go, oh, fuck, I've got to fill it <laughs> I think even, like, I, it's weird because it's a strange job to do because some of the people you know are the, the best people at doing a thing. And it's good sometimes to occasionally talk to them and they go, oh, Christ, I've really got to fill this out. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think, I think it's easy to think everyone else is going, oh man, I've got too much stuff. I've already started writing 2017's Edinburgh show. I've got sure, 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 sure. Whereas I think actually we're all, everyone is kind of going, oh shit. But which, but which comes first? Do you think, uh, hang on a minute, this thing I'm thinking could get a laugh? Or do you think, I really want to say this thing I'm thinking? Uh, this thing I'm thinking would get a laugh. You do think with that yeah, way around. I, I'm relieved I, to hear that because yeah, I, yeah. I think in those terms and then I catch myself and I, I go, no, it's true. That's not the right way round. You're supposed to be thinking about expressing uh, Again, yourself. I think that the phrase the right way round is, again, an odd one just because I think you, you just got to find a working method that's comfortable for you. If you look at all of the people who have talked about the way that they write, there's like five different ways. Some people write word for word. Some people make notes, some people use a recorder. And similarly, I think some people would start from a perspective of going, I want to do a show about this. Like I would say someone like, this may be again me speaking out of turn, but I'd say someone like Sarah Pascoe. I, I, I'm very, again, envious of her because it feels like sometimes she goes, I am interested in talking about this. So I'm going to get a grips with it and I'm going to make it funny. And I think that that's, that's what makes her a really exciting comic. But it's just not something I'm comfortable doing. I'm comfortable working it the other way around, which is thinking about something and going, oh, hey, that might be funny. So let's talk about your, your process then. 
What, how do you start? What are your starting points? And I sort of, we've written together in the past yeah. in cafes, so yeah, I sort yeah. of know this, but you know, this is the fucking show, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would start with some like half baked things. It, the reason my shows, I don't think necessarily I set out with a statement to go, I'm go this show is going to be about subjectivity or economics and it's going to it's going to have a reference to this essay that I read and this survey it's just those are the things that interest me and so those I am interested in politics and opinions and you know I I'm interested in that kind of stuff in my day-to-day life and so those that's what's going around in my head when I'm walking around in you know, just walking around thinking about all of that kind of stuff because I, I and it's just kind of cycling and I'm, I'm only smiling now because I'm realizing that what's going on in my head when I'm walking around is me, 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 <laughs> me, 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 which well, is why is... all of my shows are me, me, me. <laughs> but that, but that's great. That's like that's yeah. You should be proud of that and own that because that's a lot of great comedy comes from of people walking around going me, 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 me. Like I, you know. If Mark Maron brings out an hour where he starts it by going, guys, I've just realised there's a lot of suffering going on in the world and none of it's mine. Everyone would be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Maron, we want to see you suffer. <laughs> but um, Sorry, yeah. Yeah, I think that, that, that... So that's all the stuff that's going through my head. And also there is a huge amount of me, 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 me going on in the background as well. Um, and so that... I'm interested... So I'm interested in... A subject. So the whole of this show basically started from an idle conversation I had while I was M- I was doing a gig in Edinburgh, like a free fringe gig. And there were about 11 or 12 people there. And I did it because the people who run it are really nice. And I was talking to the audience. It was fun. You know, I, when you're doing Edinburgh, sometimes you get bogged down in the show. And it's fun sometimes to go and do material that isn't your show. It's very strange to be relaxing by doing more of your job. Very strange, but it definitely helps me. I like going and doing yeah. a set to 10 yeah. people and not doing anything that I'm doing in my show. And I was doing this gig and there was a girl in the front row who I was talking to and uh, there was a couple, nice young couple in the front row and I was talking to them and it was kind of, it was like a, it was weird sort of conversation. And this girl was wearing a t-shirt that had Bazinga on it, which I did not, I did not recognise. So I asked her what it was. She said, she said, it's from the Big Bang Theory in a way that was like, you must be kidding me. <laughs> How do you not know this? And she said, it's with the Big Bang Theory. And I said, do you like the show? She said, well, obviously I've got a t-shirt. And I said, I fucking hate that show. And she laughed. And because there was sort of quite a good convivial atmosphere, everyone laughed. And I thought, it's, it made me think, it's quite funny that I resent people who don't enjoy my comedy. <laughs> but at the same time, I hate the Big Bang Theory. So there and that, the whole show started from the position of me going, I don't like the Big Bang Theory, so I am sympathetic to Big Bang Theory fans who may not like my comedy. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. and, that, that, and then the whole thing kind of bounced off that. And that's just because I am interested in the idea of people's opinion and, uh, you know, and I'm interested in the way that you verbalise your opinion. And, you know, I was a fucking debater at school. I read comment and analysis and blogs until I'm blue in the face. And it's, I, I, I'm interested in the way that people express their opinion. So that's just stuff that goes around my head, like on a day-to-day basis. So, and then the material, because I, 
what I find is if it turns around in my head for long enough, something will, a way in will come in that I can mm-hmm. write comedy about it. But I wouldn't say that I set... I, I never at any point thought, I'll write a show about subjectivity and opinion. Yes. It's just that happened to be what I was thinking about for a while. And then when I, when I said I hate the Big Bang Theory and a Big Bang Theory fan laughed, I thought, right, that's funny. Yeah. Because we, comedy is such a taste-driven thing sure. that it seemed like an interesting way in to all of those issues that I'd been thinking about, about the way that people express opinion and... I'm constantly looking for a way in to talk about things that interest me. But I would only go start talking about it once I found that way in. Because I'm a, I'm a stand-up. I'm a comedian. Yeah. I want... My job is ultimately to make Oh, is that what you are? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the lines have felt blurred. Sometimes, some gigs, I come off stage and go, oh, I mean, that was an A-level essay. Do I you, just read out an A-level essay, do, basically. Do this the next question. Do you lose interest in things if you can't make them funny, or do they stay there being a thing that you're interested in, that you're trying to write about that isn't working? Sometimes you have to let stuff go and admit that... Can I you give us an example of one? I'm always fascinated to hear what stuff's been excised or removed or, or has kind of sputtered and died along the way. What and why? Stuff that I can, there's so much stuff that I've just had to jettison because it... Just never really, people would just sort of agree with it as a good point. I think there's a lot of stuff about, there was a lot of stuff about economics that I was talking about and capitalism that I managed to boil down into one joke, but that I was talking around quite a lot. And people were going, yep, these are very salient points about financial inequality. It's not fucking comedy, mate. What was the line? What was the line? Comedy. There wasn't like a line that I, I had see, to drop. Okay. It was a series of yeah. ideas about the unfairness of the global financial system. And now saying it out loud, you go, of course that wasn't funny. But I managed to boil it down. I managed to find one joke about it, about uh, that's in the show. But then there was a lot of talking around it. And mm. I sort of thought, right, this will be really interesting. A, a, a better example is the piece of material in my show about insomnia. So I have trouble sleeping. And I've ended up with like a two and a half minute chunk about uh, insomnia. But there was a lot of stuff around that about why I can't sleep and, um, you know, processing all of the information that's happened in a day and your brain kind of stopping you from sleeping by bringing up issues that, again, was interesting, but it wasn't funny. And so it was about winnowing down. I would say there's probably it's very rare that a whole topic goes. Yes. But what inevitably will happen is it just gets thinned down and all the stuff that is interesting but not funny gets boiled down into something that is funny. That, for me, just because there's a danger with my style of the whole thing lapsing into a lecture, I constantly have to remind myself you just need to keep the punchlines coming in. You need to keep the punchlines coming in. Um, It must be quite... That almost seems, you know, it's the way... My psyche works, as we know. I'm going, God, I'd love it if my stuff, when it wasn't funny, it was at least interesting. (laughs) When my stuff isn't funny, there's a danger it lapses into a man saying things. (laughs) But that's, yeah, I mean, that's, we're all in, we're all in that. We're all in danger of, you know, disappearing up our own backsides, either if it's, you know, 
because you're talking about yourself and it's just a person talking about themselves, or if you're just saying, guys, this is what, these are my opinions, people are just going, well, I don't give a shit, mate. Tell a fucking joke. Um, do, you, um, do you read reviews? Obsessively. Do you? Obsessively. What is... I would say that's the worst thing I do. Like, that's the most... Yeah, for, for a happy, yeah, confident, interested, politically active kind of guy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unhealthy emotionally, but also it's, you know, it's very self-indulgent. You know, if you're reading a bad review, it's unnecessary masochism. And if you're reading a good review, uh, it's just... Disgusting. Yeah, it's disgusting. <laughs> if you take a position, like if you, if I was to like, if I met me, sometimes I think I would just think, you need to sort your act out, mate. What are you doing? Why are you reading reviews? Um, yeah, I do. I don't think it's healthy. Um, but I do. I can't help. I can't help myself. You'll know one of my favourite questions on the podcast is, what piece of criticism most stung you? I try to, I'm sort of, part of me feels like yeah. I should... Uh, stay away from standard questions and part of me's like I've got one or two that are like no I'll, I'll check that yeah. in so forgive me if you've heard that one before it's a good that's a but good but what, what thing hurt the most because obviously the next thought from that is well you know the stuff that hurts the most maybe that's the true stuff you yeah know? I think that there is so there's an element of that it wasn't necessarily a piece of criticism but I have been asked a couple of times about the amount that I talk about race and do I feel like it's a do I feel like it's a crutch that I'm leaning on? And that stung, but only because I feel like... Only because there's obviously a part of me that feels like I talk about race too much. Um, but then you have to go... If, if you actually go over... it's You know, in this show, it's only about... It's maybe about 15 minutes of an hour show. And then you also have to go, even individually, I'm happy with the content that I talked about. But I, for some reason, that really stung me. I don't, I, I don't fully know why. I think maybe it was the idea that it was... Maybe I felt like it was a dig at me as a comedian, that I couldn't be funny unless I was incorporating my race into it. And it wasn't, that was, it wasn't even necessarily a piece of criticism. It was just something I got asked repeatedly in interviews in India... Uh, I was d- I did some press stuff in India, and uh, I, it was something that I got asked uh, about quite a lot. And for some reason, it did sting me. I, I don't. I, don't I, I I would say I'm not fully sure why that is. But um, and then there's other, you know, uh, the, the the when it's a publication you read outside, you know, in your general life, or if it's a reviewer, for example, that you whose opinion you respect and you get a review that isn't positive, that's hard. That's definitely hard. I would say the most nervous I've ever been about a review coming out was my Guardian review because <laughs> and it was the review was good, which is fine, but I was terrified. I think I'm not sure how emotionally ready I am to get a bad review from the Guardian because I've been reading that paper since I was, you know, 13 or something. And I think it may even have been, I think Josie Long said something like, getting a bad review from The Guardian is like being told off by your parents. Mm. So I think it's, the reviews that sting can sometimes be, if it's a publication you, or a, or a critic who you have read in the past and whose opinion you value. And you go, yeah, this person knows what they're talking about. And then you read a negative review and you go, 
Oh, God. <laughs> you presume you're faced with a choice there whether to stop believing that they know what they're talking yeah, about exactly, because it no yeah. longer matches up with your worldview yeah. or to say they know what they're talking about and therefore I must be bad. Yeah, I think, and I think the problem, there's part of me that thinks, oh, you should never read any reviews. And then there's other parts of me that think, on occasion, like my Times review last year was a th- from 2013, had quite a specific criticism in it that I think was actually quite helpful in a weird way. I, it, it, he, the reviewer said something about how I was maintaining that I was... I, in my last year, I described myself as being a nice lad trying his best. And in the review, it said, he says he's a nice lad trying his best. And he's kind of making out that he's just this humble guy. But he's also broadcasting opinions in quite a confident way. And he's... It's something like I was underestimating the extent to which I am pushing my brain on people and then also simultaneously trying to be like, hey, but I'm just a normal guy, regular guy like you. Yeah. And I would say that was actually quite helpful. I think that's actually accurate. I don't think yeah. it's a particularly, it's not a popular view amongst comics to defend reviewers. But yeah, it was the, the, the Times review of my second show and I thought it was genuinely helpful. That's a genuinely helpful point. And it was interesting to read about... It was interesting to read that and think, that's I can actually... I agree with that. And it's something that I can sort of action positively. Um, and it was helpful. I, it, I know it is... <laughs> a lot of people... I'll get some grief for this <laughs> from some of my friends. Uh, but it, that review of my show reading that review of my show was helpful in moving forward i we're supposed to describe critics as the scum of the earth <laughs> i'm aware that's the party line but um... i think the end of the day anyone that i i my issue with critics is that they are no more or less relevant than anyone else who's seen a lot of shows and i think you can take on feedback from people i think it doesn't matter whether they're a critic yes. or whether they're yeah, your yeah, friend yeah. or whether yeah. they're your, another comic or your mum yeah you can take feedback on from people. Yeah, I think so. I think that that's right. But I notionally, I think that if it's the job of a critic to elevate themselves above, because their job is peddling an opinion. So if you're going to, I think a good critic is somebody who is able to articulate their opinion with a clarity and also have you know, because they're supposed to be students of the genre. So it was to have some kind of sense of the wider context, which isn't just, oh, this is a bit like the mighty Bush. Like, yes. you, you have to be like, so if you're interested, if you read somebody like Philip French, who was the film critic in The Observer, or uh, I, I mean, I particularly think Philip French, the film critic in The Observer, he's a great example of what good criticism involves. Because in theory, you're right. A critic is no different from just a person in the street. But their job is to have an opinion. So you have, I think good critics are people whose opinion doesn't necessarily count more, but good critics are people whose opinion are able to articulate their opinions clearly and write well. And that's what elevates their opinion because they, in theory, should have a wider knowledge of the context and the genre and be able to appreciate things from a slightly different perspective. Because we all use them. Like I use film critics or music critics. There are people whose taste I trust because it aligns with my own mm. and whose opinion I respect, even when... 
And similarly, there are people who, if someone hates a thing, I'm probably going to enjoy it. Yeah, there are, definitely. Yeah. And there are also people who even... So, like, I hated the movie Gone Girl. I hated it. But I read Peter Bradshaw's The Guardian Film Reviewer, and I read his review, and I thought, I respect that opinion. I disagree with it, but it's articulated well, so I respect that opinion. And that, to me, is what a crit- critics should be setting themselves above the opinions of other people, because that's just their job. That's like us saying, comedians saying, somebody coming up to a comedian going, well, my friend is funny. Yeah, why, yeah, why yeah. should I bother paying to see you? And that's the thing with critics. It's like, I've got an opinion. Why should I pay to hear yours? And good critics do justify that. Kumar that stands up for the critics. This yeah. one's going to get retweeted. <laughs> um, listen, we, we must uh, draw to a close. But before we do, you touched on it there. And I... Oh, wait, you'll notice one of my notes there says poo slash butt slash clown. Yeah. We've kind of covered that earlier yeah, on. Yeah. Um, you mentioned it earlier on, but you said in your show that someone in the industry had said to you, stop mentioning that you're Indian on yeah. stage. And obviously in the show, that becomes a comic conceit of going, they're going to know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, they're going to yeah. have to touch it. What, what was that specific bit of feedback? Was it stop mentioning that you're Indian so much? Was that the thing that you were talking about? A, a no, 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 no. I was advised... Uh, years ago now that I shouldn't talk about being Indian in my stand-up um, at all because um, people were asked... So this is like probably 2008, 2009. Like I had a, I had a tough couple of years in comedy and some of it was because I was being advised very poorly by somebody, by a professional... Um, and so this person told me that I should stop mentioning that I'm Indian on stage and it really knocked me because I sort of thought, oh, I don't really know. And then, so the piece of material becomes a ridiculous thing, but there is a core of truth to it, which was the same person who advised me to stop mentioning that I was Indian on stage, then subsequently sent me in for an audition. It was an agent. There's no point in me (laughs) around. Then sent me in for an audition where I was being asked to do an Indian accent. Um, and I was so furious and I was so offended because it, to me, it, it, when I talk about my ethnicity on stage as a standup, I'm in control of the presentation of it. And I'm very careful to make sure that I'm not getting any Uncle Tom laughs. I, I spend a lot of time making sure that my material isn't something that a racist could laugh at by accident. You know, I don't want that. I don't want to sell out my cultural heritage in that way. I'm very keen to not do that. Whereas this was a script written by somebody else. It was me using my ethnicity to score cheap laughs in a way that what I felt sold out the Indian community in this country. And when I didn't want to do that, this person advised me, he basically told me that I'd have no future in comedy and I would say that that whole experience, it was about six, seven months, set me back a year because it really knocked my confidence. If you talk to people like David Trent and Ben Tarjay, they, amongst others, all have a good Kumar's quitting story. <laughs> um, and so, it, yeah, it did really knock my confidence. There were a lot of times where I thought of where I was going to pack it in because... It was a really, and I think that piece of criticism particularly really stung me um, because, I, you know, in your head you're going, but this person knows what they're talking about. And it took me about a year and a half to realise they don't know what they're talking about. 
this person was full of shit. Um, and, um, yeah, and, they, you know, so that, yeah, it, 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 in the long run, it helped me. Not just because I got five minutes closer to filling my hour this year. Let's finish on a ComCom classic. What would be, what's the best piece of advice you've been given? Um, I've been given a lot of good advice. I really thought you were pausing there because you were going to go, um, my ego is so big that I don't <laughs> register advice. Yeah, I've been given a lot of good advice by myself. <laughs> I am my own best counsel. Um, this is, I'm, I feel like sometimes, <laughs> I, I feel like I should be cooler, but I'm a huge comedy nerd. I like, I think you would say, I, the people who come to see me, I would say the bracket that I've been put into of comedians, I'm probably the least interesting, like formally, of the lot of them. But I, the comedy nerds that come out to see me, they would go and see like Tony Law and James Acaster and Josie Long and then me. And of that list, I would say I'm probably the least alternative and in some ways the least interesting. I believe that it's because the people who are watching me feel like one of us has got through. <laughs> I, I think comedy nerds watch me and go, one of us made it. Good job, buddy. That's so <laughs> untrue, but so lovely to hear that. But, that's, yeah. So the best, the pieces of advice that I've given are all things that I've collected from like various interviews that I've read with comedians and uh, various like podcasts that I've listened to. There's a lot of good advice that's come on this podcast from various different people. I Every couple of months, I listen to Aziz Ansari's Nerdist interview. And in that interview, he talks about a piece of advice he was given where he was doing something like he was trying to get five minutes together for television. And this club owner said, don't worry about all of the industry stuff. Be undeniably funny. If you think what you're doing is funny and no one is picking up on it, do something funnier. Just constantly push yourself to be better and try not to think too much about the big picture. And by the time I heard that, it was that interview was probably about 18 months ago. And I feel like I had learned that already, but through experience and realising that things only started going well for me when I stopped giving a shit about how they were going to go and just concentrating on writing good stuff and, you know, constantly producing better stuff and getting better and better and better and not worrying about what agents had seen me or what TV people had seen me. That stuff is all a distraction. The best advice you can ever be given is be undeniably funny. And this part of me that wishes someone had just sat me down, <laughs> like, in 2008 and just gone, don't think about agents don't think about television people. Don't worry. If you are good enough, they will come to you. Just concentrate on your material. And if you think your material is good and no one is coming to see you, do better material. And just the phrase, be undeniably funny, is the best piece of advice you can ever give anyone. Thanks, Nish. <laughs> So that was Nish. Thanks very much to him for being on the show. Do remember his show is on at Soho Theatre, Ruminations on the Nature of Subjectivity. 
uh, which is from Monday the 12th of January to Saturday the 17th of January early next year. Please do go and see that. Uh, remember to come along to see Slightly Fat Features in Variety Soup at Leicester Square Theatre. I think that's we're going on the 15th, Monday the 15th of December. Pile in and get your tickets for that. That should be a lot of fun. Uh, thanks to Nathan Wood for co-producing this show. Uh, he did all the Podmin himself, as did I for this one, so uh, no no Pod Gremlins to thank this time. Um, that's everything, I think, at ComComPod on Twitter, info at comedianscomedian.com if you'd like to get in touch and suggest either some sort of brain training exercises, a means of tattooing things on my body so I stop forgetting what I've said all the time, uh, or indeed allergy advice or or CPR, or if you want to send me some oxygen by post, you can do that. Uh, through the internet thanks everybody um dave mcsavage coming up next week i'm sure you're going to enjoy that and uh thanks once more to nish and to you for listening much appreciated share it with a friend give us a five star if you're on itunes if you are strapped for cash speak to you soon (laughs) 